Logos Mobile Education provides seminary-level course content to anyone right where they are. We work with world-class scholars to carefully craft a learning experience that only Logos could deliver. Visit logos.com slash mobile ed to start learning today. Welcome to Mobile Ed Conversations, where we chat with today's top Christian scholars. I'm Kyle Nation, and I'm here with Dr. Bobby Conway. Dr. Conway is lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church in North Carolina. He's also the founder and host of the One Minute Apologist, a rapidly growing video ministry. And he also is a regular speaker at conferences, talking about Bible teaching, apologetics, and marriage. Finally, he's the author of a number of books, including Hell, Rob Bell, and What Happens When People Die, The Fifth Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, You. And finally, two upcoming books, Doubting Towards Faith, The Journey to Confident Christianity, and Does God Exist, and 51 Other Compelling Questions About God in the Bible. Today, he joins me at the Faith Life Campus in Bellingham, Washington, where he is filming his second course with Mobile Ed, Introducing Apologetics. Dr. Conway, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, it's good to be with you, Kyle. Uh, it's been an awesome week with you in studio going over uh, this course. And um, it's you know it's been fun to get your introduction to apologetics and to, to hear about your upcoming book about doubting towards faith. Tell me a little bit about that. I know you mentioned it in a former podcast, uh, something that I felt was really helpful, talking about the difference between doubting towards faith and doubting away from faith. And so just share a little bit about how that has come about to be a book and the feedback you've gotten so far. Well, Doubting Toward Faith is a book that has come out of my own angst and experiences with doubt. And I think the church does a good job, relatively speaking, allowing people to talk about their fears or their worries or their depression. But what about those who struggle with doubt? And the word uh, doubt uh, means to be in two minds. And so you can doubt toward unbelief or you could doubt toward faith. Doubt always takes on a direction. It's going somewhere. It doesn't stay stagnant. You don't exist continuously in that place. It makes up its mind, so to speak. And so as it relates to doubt, um, we just come across certain questions. As a Christian apologist, I'm reading stuff all the time that's challenging our faith. And so that can do a number on people at times. Uh, I believe that uh, a heavy seating, a heavy season of doubting, though, can be the making of a Christian apologist because uh, it becomes your material for study. You start looking at the answers uh, to these questions that you are struggling with. And a person who's a bona fide believer in the Lord Jesus that goes through a season of doubt will know the angst that that can create. And the reason they're feeling angst is not because they don't love God, but because they love him so much that they can't bear to think about that this might not be true. And so for me, though I don't believe I can have absolute 100% certainty because uh, doubt is not just a uh, Christian problem, though. It's a human problem. And so no matter what one believes, they're going to struggle with doubt. So to walk out of Christianity and to go into something else is just to inherit another set of unforeseen questions. We are finite. Uh, we don't have the answers to everything, and we live in a context where we can struggle. And so if Adam and Eve could doubt in paradise, how much more are we susceptible to doubting in paradise lost? And doubt in the Bible is ubiquitous. John the Baptist, Abraham, uh, 
We see Thomas struggle with his doubts. So doubt is just something that we're going to struggle with as humans, and the church needs to figure out a way to help people to doubt toward faith. Do you think that, as you were talking just now and after being in the course, that we have kind of a spectrum of stigmatizing doubt and glorifying doubt? Mm-hmm. And how would how would we um, balance that in a church setting? How would we have that um, that place where we understand that it's a, it's a human thing and then be the kind of church or community or group of friends who encourage doubting towards faith? What are some practical ways to do that? So we're going to have our doubts, uh, and my thought is doubting in silence can be horrific for somebody, but we need to be wise in the way that we doubt because some people can't handle those. Uh, We need to have people that we can trust or people that can help us through that. But I would want to say very clearly that I don't celebrate doubt. I think doubt is a, a horrific thing to go through but I don't condemn those who are using their mind and bump up against some questions that can create some stickiness for them. So what I want to do is help people to doubt out loud so that we can help them to doubt toward faith. And I believe that Christianity best closes the doubt gap. And so it doesn't close it completely for us again, because we're not, you know, perfect in knowledge. And I would have to uh, be omniscient to not struggle with any doubts, but I'm not that. And so, no, I do not think it's good to celebrate doubt. People that end up doing that, they just walk around and they just cut everything down. I don't, I'm not looking to cut things down. I'm looking how I can honor the Lord, how I can be faithful to him, how I can love him, how I can properly understand truth. But one thing that I think can set people up with about with doubt is when they get saved, depending on, see what happens is you get saved you, you get your guilt for, get forgiven and you discover some purpose in life. And depending upon which church you become a part of, if it's a hyper ultra fundamentalist church, you're going to get handed a long list of other things that you need to hold fast to. And so what can happen is, is the moment you start reading outside of uh, your particular uh, church's views, you can feel like you're doing something wrong. Well, you might not be doing anything right wrong. You might just be using your mind and thinking. And so I believe that we should give people a big box to think in. And so at some point, yes, the walls come down and you slip into heresy. But I like to say it like this. Some people want to be as conservative as they can be about their conservatism. I want to be as liberal as I can be about my conservatism without slipping into heresy. I don't want to be a heretic. I don't want to celebrate that at all. But neither do I want to go around and acting like I'm the final arbiter of what's right and what's wrong. Really well said. And and that is an example of, I think, some of the helpful um, paradigms that you have, have, you know, for for really lay people to uh, wrestle with and use those categories. So I appreciate that. Uh, things like helping it close the doubt gap. Christian mm-hmm. does that. And then um, finally, what you said just there about... Uh, about being liberal, about your conservatism, still being conservative, wanting the truth and not nothing but the truth, uh, but but being generous because we know our limitations. So truly helpful um, on that because uh, that kind of speaks to your story um, that you you've in in even referencing before um, that it becomes your material when you start reading outside it becomes your material. That's like the your doubts are your first true step to becoming an apologist. Tell us about how far that has gone, because now you're you're in the middle of a PhD, researching a, a philosophy PhD. Now clearly you have 
right outside the the bounds of your home church movement, I'm assuming, and have um, started to delve into the moral argument of God for God. Um, tell us about that. Tell us how that's going and how that's been instructive to you as both a pastor and an apologist. Well, my area of research, I'm getting my PhD at the University of Birmingham in England, and I'm studying the moral argument for God's existence. And I think the moral argument is a very compelling argument uh, for us to consider. But my question has to do with guilt. And I'm looking at this whole idea of guilt. Now, I believe that there is subjective guilt, obviously. So not everybody who feels guilty is guilty. And then there are some people that don't feel guilty and they are guilty. And so uh, what I'm getting at is that insofar as the guilt that we are experiencing corresponds to God's moral nature, if we have broken a moral law of God, then we are guilty whether we feel it or not. So there's guilt standing and guilt feelings. And uh, this is just something of intrigue to me. Uh, I want to widen the conversation amongst theists and atheists by asking, why does an atheist even feel guilt to begin with? Now, uh, I know that some atheists will say that guilt was put in, uh, guilt kind of was something that became a part of survival of the fittest. It became sort of a survival mechanism that if, you know, you do this, you're going to experience these consequences. So therefore, guilt was this protective mechanism so that you could survive longer. But I want to say that we all experience guilt, and uh, unless you're a sociopath, and we, I'll have to deal with that as well. But what is the cause behind our guilt? And I think that uh, I want to look at, can guilt tell us something about God? If we're guilty... Uh, does that tell us something about the nature of God? Well, so what have been, um, not that you have to give all the goods right now, I know yeah. you're going to publish eventually, uh, what have been some of the main findings that you found, maybe particularly helpful from the more technical philosophical side, but that could speak to some people where they are? Like if there was a, you know, you know, an atheist and a, a theistic friend mm -hmm. listening to this podcast, what would you say to them based on that research based on what you currently have, have worked through? Well, I'm still in the nascent stages of the research. And so that's one of the things that's going to be interesting for me to see because I've got a lot of questions that I'm going to need to find answers to. What, what are some of those questions? Well, uh, you know, what about the sociopath? You know, this is an interesting thought that doesn't feel guilt. Why is that? Uh, is there a naturalistic explanation? Uh, what what would be a theistic response to that? Um, what about the idea of guilt? I mean, uh, can we really be objective with this? For instance, we're living in a culture right now. There was a time where our culture in America would have said, uh, by and large, that uh, that homosexual marriage is wrong or homosexual actions is wrong for that matter. But today it's flipped. And what's interesting about the moral trajectory is it sort of goes like this. At first, we reject something. Then we tolerate it. Then we accept it. Then we celebrate it. Then we reject the very thing that we once rejected. So you could take a number of moral issues, right? Like 
divorce in our culture. At one time it was rejected, then it was tolerated, then it was, you know, accepted, and then it was celebrated. Hey, divorce parties. And then it's rejected. Hey, how dare you think that uh, it's wrong for someone to get a divorce? You can do that with homosexuality. And so I think you could take any of these moral issues that we feel and run it through this grid that I've developed. And I think that the question uh, then becomes, well, is morality relative? Now, obviously, as a believer, I don't think it is. But I could see how somebody could say, well, it looks relative. It, it, it looks like it's just a cultural thing. And I'm going to be interested in trying to figure out, uh, you know, what would uh, objective morality look like and how could we make a case for objective morality in a culture where it seems as if we're seeing some moral relativism taking place? Is there an explanation? Now, keep in mind, as a Christian then, when it comes to like the idea of guilt, I'm in my research, I'm not going uh, to the Christian point. I'm just talking about does, uh, can, you know, is there a moral argument for the existence of God? This argument could be used by Jews, by Muslims, and by Christians alike. It stands alone. It stands by itself. It does. An argument. It does. Yeah. But then what I would say is that the solution to guilt looks Christian-shaped. Yes. Okay. Well said. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, I, I am a Christian. I believe that totally. in the gospel. But even using, like, more of this pure philosophical, you know, using arguments in their own kind of in their own arena, what you get on the end of it is undeniably at least pointed towards a, a Christian theological response. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that that's where I'm going with that. Interesting. So, yeah, you want to be careful. So if you're listening, don't go steal my thunder. <laughs> no, there, you know, there hasn't, there's not a lot out there on this uh, topic. And, you know, when those are doing their research on areas, you, you do, you want to keep things somewhat close to the sleeve because it's, it's, it is an area of interest, but, uh, I'm looking forward to getting stuff out there. I think that this can be helpful. Some of the scientific arguments that I'm so thankful for, for instance, some of the work that Craig's done, uh, you know, on the cosmological argument and some of the debates that he's done, uh, you know, as a great erudite Christian thinker, uh, it's been great. What I'm wanting to do is I'm hoping, uh, that people could hear my research when I'm done and it would not only be something that is intellectually um, faithful and compelling, but it will touch people on a heart level. And so for me as a pastor, the reason I think moral philosophy resonates so much with me is we are in the midst of a moral revolution as a culture. I think moral philosophy is a field that is really critical, and in particular for Christians to say, to come into the department of moral philosophy and study in this arena because some of the questions that people are going to be asking is right around the area of morality, and pastors are always going to have to be dealing with people's moral questions, and we need to provide good answers. And while we use the scriptures, we're going to have a lot of doubters coming to our church, and I want to be as equipped as possible as a pastor and as a Christian apologist to be able to help people with their intellectual moral objections. What I mean, who can argue with that goal? Uh, super thankful that your heart and we're have benefited greatly from, um, from spending this week in studio, Aaron and I, uh, hearing mm-hmm. some of that. Cause I mean, obviously that's a, any, uh, any Christian, but especially Christian leader wants to have that same ability, that same skill, and also that same heart to reach people who are coming into their circle of influence to process through 
doubts and be able to disciple them well. And one helpful kind of tool that you've put in my tool belt this week, uh, another set of categories, is as you've talked about um, some personality types that when it comes to doubt come into play in interesting ways where they are either obsessive or they are an analyzer or both or neither and how that affects them as they process through their doubt. And you've clearly uh, gone through those rounds yourself and also applied that as you help people and help them kind of put themselves um, on that spectrum so that they know uh, kind of where to lean to start doubting towards faith again. Um, so talk to me a little bit about um, maybe obsessive analyzing personalities and the, the different kinds of things that happen uh, when people are going through doubt that way. Yeah. So, you know, there are different facets of doubt that I talk about in doubting toward faith, like the, uh, intellectual doubt, emotional doubt, spiritual doubt, you know, the ancient question, has God said, even volitional doubt, where we go through this struggle, uh, where there's this battle of the wills, where we can start to struggle with, hey, I want to go this direction. I want to go direction A, but what God wants me to go direction B. And we find ourselves in the midst of a bout with doubt. You know, are you sure, God, that I'm supposed to go direction B? How do I know that you have what's best in store for me? Well, as it relates to the type of doubters then, there's types of doubts, but the types of doubters, I think the obsessive analyzer is the one at risk of experiencing the worst case of the curiosities. And as that person struggles with doubt, it can become completely vexing for them. And that's my wiring. Uh, I'm an obsessive analyzer. I've been clean for, you know, over 20 years. Uh, you know, went to AA back in October of 94, did over 400 meetings of sobriety. Um, behind uh, that is just an addictive personality in general. And so when I became a Christian, I just started obsessing on God and reading and studying and analyzing. But here's the way I like to distinguish this. If you're obsessive, but you're not an analyzer, uh, you're not even going to know the questions to ask per se, because you're not analyzing. You might be obsessed on something, but you're not necessarily analyzing through things. But if you're an analyzer and you're not obsessive, you can think through certain questions, but not fixate. You can detach and you can stay more whole in that way. But if you're an obsessive analyzer, uh, it becomes compulsive for you and you can get locked into your doubts. So what this means then for this individual is there's certain cognitive therapy that people need to utilize, like unlocking themselves. Uh, Gary Habermas, who's written three books on this, was very helpful for me. He talked about a book uh, called Telling Yourself the Truth and just knowing how to catch when you're getting into this addictive thinking uh, because you can just so lock in and obsess. And then what happens, uh, not all intellectual doubt turns um, to emotional doubt, but for the obsessive analyzer, it often does. You fixate so much intellectually that it absorbs then into your emotions and it just begins to overtake you. So in other words, doubts can metastasize like a vacuum cleaner sucking up a whole host of other set of emotions like fears and worries. And ultimately where doubt will take you, it will take you to the depths of depression and then one step further, despair, where some can go to a place where their doubts where they started off with just a natural state of the curiosities where now you despair life itself. And I mean, I, 
I would find it hard to believe if, if any listener today or um, anybody I've interacted with does hasn't either been somewhere on that spectrum or know someone who is there. And uh, so this is a helpful analysis of that spectrum to know when you're on it. How how do you serve the person who is on the way or in despair? Yeah. And if like a person was hearing this today and that's mm-hmm. where they are, what's your encouragement to them? Wow, Kyle. Uh, okay, so I think that there is a host of things. You know, I talk about, I take two chapters to talk about doubt triggers in my book, Doubting Toward Faith and the different doubt triggers. But then there is sort of the antidotal process to doubt. And I think uh, one thing that I would say is to the doubter, look, there's something mysterious about prayer. And for me, unfortunately, I can get, you know, hyper analytical, even in my prayer life, you know, like, okay, God, would you really answer my prayer about X when there's people that are starving to death in other cultures? And I find that I have to get out of my head a little bit. Uh, And there's just something mysterious about it, you know, and there's something about being a good old fashioned faithful Christian. You know what I found, Kyle, just getting back to the basics of heart pursuit of God. If you seek me with all your heart, then you'll find me. Well, I have found that many doubters, they, their, while their minds get bigger, their hearts grow smaller. And we need to make sure that we inflate our hearts for God while our minds get inflated. So don't, don't underestimate the power of just good old fashioned pursuing God, uh, fasting, seeking the Lord, like those spiritual disciplines for some people, uh, they like for me, there's been seasons where I don't, I've lost sight of how to even study the Bible. It's become just this analyzing session yeah. for yes. me. I'll okay. go into the Bible and I'll go in with great, uh, intentions just to know the Lord more deeply. And before you know it, uh, my apologetics and my hermeneutics are kind of in the way. Yeah. Now th- then I'll find myself going, okay, well, am I like Kierkegaard here? Is it going to be the existential leap into the darkness? And it's not that I'm wanting to do that. I'm just saying when we're reading the Bible, devote, read the Bible devotionally. There's a time to read the Bible, you know, systematically and studying the scriptures. And we want to use good hermeneutics, but what does it mean to read the Bible devotionally? Well, we're looking for Jesus. We're looking just to find application, but then that's, that's just layer one. I would say what I would be looking for, there are those that do that, but they're still struggling. And I would say that there could be spiritual warfare involved. Don't underestimate that. I would also say that there could be um, sort of this obsessive compulsive disorder. So the obsessive analyzer is a prime candidate for OCD. And if there's somebody that really is genuinely struggling with OCD, I would say I would want to treat this person with the scriptures and encourage them to pray and do all that and have an authentic community where they can be open and so on and so forth. But now in a holistic approach, I would say finding a good counselor. So talking to your doctor, for instance, your serotonin levels uh, could be low. And by going to a doctor and getting blood work done, uh, what about your testosterone? Uh, There are things that, that can be done clinically where I, here's what I'd say. Look, there was a time where I would say no one can ever take any meds whatsoever. And I meant that because we are, and I still believe it, we are way too over-medicated as a culture. But what I would want to say is there comes a point in someone's life that they're so desperate 
Kyle, that now if somebody's in despair and they're going to take their life, I would say there's other steps. What if somebody is truly praying? What if somebody's truly trying to read the Bible devotionally? Well, there are people that are struggling truly with bipolar disorders or OCD that by just running some blood work or by seeing a doctor, uh, they might be surprised by what is shown. And then a doctor could prescribe a certain antidepressant. They don't have to stay on forever, but it might be nine months. Or if it is forever, now it becomes kind of the lesser of two evils. Now, I'm not saying it's evil if somebody is taking an antidepressant, but what I am saying is I'm trying to be more holistic in this, whereby I recognize that there's, there's, there's things about the brain that can be tricky. And if there's serotonin that's low or testosterone levels that are low, um, not only that, certain um, cognitive things that people can understand about their own brain, how to catch some of these snags that they're getting themselves in. So I'm trying to look at this very holistically without throwing out the baby with the bathwater here. It's truly instructive. You don't want to, uh, you know, lock yourself into a one size fits all response. And that's really what I'm taking from this is be open to uh, the fact that there, there may need to be an increase in Bible instruction to help someone pull out, but there may also be an emotional uh, kind of mental clinical thing. And I need to be open to getting, building a bullpen of coaches around that, that I know how mm -hmm. to serve someone in that. Or if I myself was ever found to be in that place, I definitely want people to be gracious and uh, helpful in that way. And that's not me mm -hmm. prescribing as a pastor. That's beyond totally. me. That's another pay grade. Exactly. That's why I'm like, yeah, I need, <laughs> I need a, a somewhere to go to get that help. Yeah. Um, and but to be open and humble about that as an option, as opposed to just locking it out as a possibility, that is truly helpful for when people are in that despair. Um, like, because again, just anecdotally thinking through my own story and the stories around mine, uh, you know, and the lives around me, um this is truly helpful. It's, it's common. It's more common than, than not actually. And so, um, this is helpful in equipping, uh, well, equipping the saints to do the work, um, it is helping those uh, people in despair. What's interesting is whenever it's a friend who's not a Christian, who's in despair with some other set of beliefs that they have, um, what's your encouragement to, let's say just a, you know, um, Christian person, uh, who is in the workplace in the cubicle and they have made a, you know, they have non-Christian friends and they encounter their despair. What are helpful ways for then presenting Christ in that moment? Um, as a, as a, a way out of their despair when they're despairing of life. Well, what you end up bumping up against sometimes is, uh, depending on where this person's at, you know, you know, Lord willing, there'll be just a powerful moment with the Spirit, and the Spirit saves this person, and they come to Christ, and they're very open to a Christian dialogue. Uh, when they're not open to a Christian dialogue, then, you know, be the fifth gospel, uh, not an inspired gospel, but hopefully an inspiring gospel where our life, we just kind of live as good news before them. But let's just say we're talking to somebody that is in despair, they're suicidal, and they are absolutely not interested in Jesus whatsoever. Well, I still think that there's things that we can do to help this person. And here's what I mean by that. I think sometimes we can become so either or that if we're talking to somebody, so suppose here I'm a pastor, somebody comes to the office and I'm spending time with this individual and they're just not interested in Jesus whatsoever. And I I started there and I want them to place their faith in Christ. Well, I don't want them to go out of the office and go and hang themselves. 
So what kind of things would I say to somebody in despair? I'd say, look, ultimately, I believe Jesus is going to be your meaning in life. He said, I came to give life and life abundantly. But let me just give you some other things that I think that can help you, even if you're a Christian, regardless of your belief. Take a, Just sit down and just take a deep breath in through your nostrils, hold it in your chest, and exhale. Do that over and over again. Now people are thinking, okay, look, Bobby, look, he's gone Zen Buddhism on me here. Look at um, Richard Gere. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying even uh, as an athlete growing up, just lear- knowing how to breathe properly, uh, I remember before uh, I was living for Jesus and sold out for Christ that that was something that was helpful for me. I strug- I've i always struggled with anxiety, Kyle, so that would help me. I said just... Breathe in through the nose, hold my air in my chest, breathe out. Just talking to someone about relaxing, uh, talking to somebody about eating good, making sure that their diet's good, uh, doing cardiovascular exercise, um, making sure that somebody has friends that they can be open and real with, journaling, writing out their thoughts. So here's what I'm encouraging this person in this moment and instill going to a doctor, making sure that they don't have any, you know, certain disorders that medications may help. Again, I am not happy, go lucky, pass out the medications. I'm just talking about someone who might go and commit suicide. Well, man, I'm going to pull out the options here. And so now all of a sudden you go, well, some of that stuff just sounds really Christianly, you know, uh, writing out your thoughts, opening up with a friend. Well, yeah, but I just believe that Jesus is the icing on the cake. Absolutely. And and just hearing what you're saying, being like, you know, that fifth gospel kind of theme of like, be the place where the person can can be cared for and see Christianity in action if, if they, you know, stay in a place where um, intellectually they're going to keep putting it at a distance that emotionally they will still draw people who believe differently than them in. And I've definitely seen that play out too. Mm. To be loving, even if someone's not convinced of your arguments, and I just appreciate the you know the apologist doing research on their PhD is still pastoring people and thinking through that. Um, that's truly helpful. Um, what's one thing that uh, in your church, when people come every Sunday and they and they leave week after week, what would you say is the primary thing you want them uh, leaving with? Mm. week after week as they come to be equipped and go out into their week and, and serve for the sake of our listeners, for your, you know, soon to be mobile ed students on an apologetics course. Um, what would you hope for them to, to walk out with from your tra- time with you and your training and uh, your message uh, to go into the world and, and take with them? That Jesus Christ can change your life through the word of God. That is what I want people to leave with. I, uh, spend a lot of time working through passages of the scripture, but it's not just a Bible study. It's applying it to their life and to their context and helping them to see how Jesus Christ can make their greatest difference in their life. Philosophers have long talked about the summum bonum of life. The word summum bonum, the words, it's a Latin phrase, the greatest good. What is the greatest good? And what I am seeking to show people week after week after week, that Jesus is the ultimate, ultimate. And many people in our culture are going to pursue certain things that will leave them empty. And what I want people to know is if you serve money is your greatest good, you can spend your lifetime trying to become a millionaire. 
And the moment you win that money, you could throw a party at your house. Somebody could come slip and fall, break their neck. And then your million dollars is theirs because they sue you. You could spend your lifetime trying to be famous. But the problem is with fame is you can't self, uh, you can't self prescribe yourself as famous. That has to be conferred upon you by others and famous fickle. Uh, so that can't be your ultimate. Uh, if people try to seek success is their ultimate, um, the problem with success is that can be all wiped out in a car accident. If others try to perceive or uh, if others try to make, um, you know, beauty or health as their ultimate, we're all going to get older and we can all catch a disease and we're all going to die. You, as it's been said before, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. So in this life, uh, you can make other relationships your ultimate, uh, but those relationships will let you down. So why serve money, relationships, success, um, you know, even education or wealth or any of those types of things, health, beauty, why make that your ultimate? If God is our ultimate, then we can have those other things, but nothing can take away our joy. And so what I want to encourage people to do is to let their idols die and to serve Jesus Christ and that's what we're striving for at Life Fellowship, teaching people to pursue at all costs a passionate, God-centered life. All of us have this temptation to put something else in the center of our life, to put something, to, to build our identity around relationships, to build our identity around our success, to build our identity around what we have, to build our identity around our looks. And anytime we do that, we are setting ourselves up for a life of insecurities. If we want to have a life of security, we can do it by building our life around the gospel. And there's nothing else out there that will give you more greater security than the Lord Jesus Christ. So will we have doubts with Jesus? Yes. But we will have a lot more confusion when we try to spend our life building a career and building our portfolio and building up our looks that's where the real emptiness is. That's where the real questions are left hanging. Amen, brother. And we'll uh, we'll leave it to that because uh, that'll preach. So, <laughs> thank you so much for this week in studio for coming back. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure we'll we'll have you back again uh, to do another course. And uh, just thank you for your ministry to your church and your research. Um, it's a, a true blessing to to be having both and to be able to to get both in in this uh, time that we've had together. So we really appreciate that. Thank you, Kyle. It's been a great week with you guys, bud. Absolutely. You can learn more from Dr. Conway by taking his courses, uh, which you can find at logos.com slash mobile ed.